0: My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we're continuing in our series on Proverbs today. You know, there's 31 days in October, and so we've asked everybody to read one chapter a week from Proverbs. There's 31 chapters a day. I'm sorry. That's right. Thank you. A day. Read 31 a day. No. That would work too. That's right. Thank you, Robert. I get messed up because I must have read chapters 15 through 21 seven or eight times this week. So anyway, we asked you to read one chapter of Proverbs a day. There we go. We got it right. And so this week we looked at Proverbs 15 through 21. And and as all the Proverbs, there's a lot in these chapters. It would be really hard for us to cover this uh, decisively and conclusively and, and I mean, there's just so many good things in there, and we're going we're gonna to focus on some things that we, I don't think we hear a lot um, today. Um, but before that, I wanted to just throw out some of the Proverbs in here that I've liked ever since I was a young man, uh, like Proverbs 17:12. This one I think is great. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. That's just funny. It's self-explanatory. Apparently Solomon had been to Yellowstone like I've been there and he saw bears and he thought, you know, I don't want to get between her and her cubs. And if that's the way, uh, you know, if the way a fool's going to be in his folly, then I'd rather have the bear. <clears throat> in fact, I think I saw uh, the fool this, this year when we got our Guatemala tickets canceled on the way to Guatemala. And I was standing in line with a crazy woman at the ticket counter who was yelling and screaming and got the cops called on her. And I thought, you know, I think I'd prefer the she-bear at this point. <clears throat> or maybe Proverbs 21.9. I, I, this is probably my first introduction to marriage. in Sunday school, as a young man, I just thought this was funny. As a teenage boy, I thought it was very funny. It says, it's better to live in a corner of the housetop than a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. <laughs> this is funny. I'm sorry. Um, because, you know, as a teenager, the only wives you've experienced are your mother and the one of your friend, and they're just nagging you to try to be worthy of humanity at that point in your life. Um, But try to encourage your wife with this one and see what happens. It's not going to go so well. You may be living on the corner of your roof, but it won't be the better that you were hoping for. Basically, Solomon here is encouraging his son to find a good wife. Remember, this is a son or a father teaching his son. In other places, Proverbs 18.22, he tells his son, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The idea is find a good wife, son. Proverbs 19.24, I like this one too. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. Now that's, that's lazy, right? I mean, eating my cinnamon toast crunch and I just kind of wear out. <laughs> I can't even, maybe it was the whole milk, it was too heavy. Eating's too hard. Kind of like when your kids are eating and they suddenly they fall asleep, head down in the bowl of cereal. Bennett thinks that's funny. It's funny when you're a kid, but it's not funny when you're the 30-year-old guy living in the basement with mom and dad, right? So Solomon is encouraging his son to be a man of diligent works. And so we love the striking language of Proverbs the, that awakens our senses, causes us to see things uh, in a new light, sometimes makes us laugh, sometimes makes us cry even. Uh, but Proverbs wants to teach us about godly wisdom, and it really does this on three different levels and I, and I think this is important to realize that it speaks to us on a on a practical level, an ethical level, and a theological level and really, all these things are they 're very intertwined. you know the theological one really becomes the foundation of wisdom, right We know that there 's a God out there, and he has a standard. And so, he would like things done according to his standard, and that's how we begin to understand the practical and ethical things built on a theology. And so, these things are very intertwined. And so, today in Proverbs 15 through 21, we're going to look at each of these things practically. We're going to look at some practical wisdom on friendship. Uh, We're going to look at some ethical wisdom on giving to the poor, both of these quickly, and then we're going to spend a little more time on a theological aspect of wisdom, which is God's uh, sovereignty that, that chapter 16 witnesses to. So let's jump right in and look at some practical <clears throat> wisdom on friendship. Uh, I'm going to begin with a proverb here, 15:17. 17. Maybe doesn't mention friendship right away, but I think it leads us into what we're thinking about here. It says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. And here we have a picture of dinner amongst people that love one another, they enjoy each other's company, and yet there isn't much to eat, and they're having a good time compared to this lavish dinner that people have, but yet they can't stand one another. Maybe Solomon's thinking of one of the state dinners that he would have with his, his military guys and his, you know, people from out of town and all this stuff, and they're going to talk business, and they got the whole spread, but he's just thinking, man, I'd rather be sitting here with my friends, Right? For me, I think this proverb sums up my time working uh, uh, 10 years in construction management. Many times we'd go out with subcontractors and people from the job and all this, and it'd be this lavish meal, sometimes even thousands of dollars a table. And I just kept thinking, man, I'd rather be sitting with my wife or my friends, right? And so it, it teaches us the, the value of, of loving friendship or loving relationship. And and God used this in my life. You know, I'd sit there at these meetings and just think, as I said, man, I'd, I'd rather be with somebody else. And I thought, I want to give my life into something that's real, something that's lasting, somewhere where I have real relationships. And I think God was using that to push me into ministry, where now I get to sit and have coffee with some of you, a snack, just sit and have water on occasion, sometimes lunch, sometimes dinner. But we talk about real things. We build each other up. We love one another, and that's way better than ever sitting at one of these expensive meals. And so let's be people that invest in one another, right? Part, part of this is about, it's better to invest and love my friend than it is to get all this stuff, right? Let, let, let's be people that invest in one another to love them well, and even if it's over hot dogs and chips. It's about investing in the relationship, We know what this loving dinner looks like. Many of you have experienced that. We usually experience it with good friends or those that we love. And Proverbs speaks a lot about friendship, but I want to pull out a few more things from from these chapters. Look at Proverbs 17, 17. It says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Now, this proverb points out what a lot of us already know, that you can have better friends outside your family than you can inside, right? See, this is a cool thing about friendship. You get to choose who you're friends with. This, this is a, a mutual agreement that we like each other, right? With family, you get what God gives you, and many times this is for your sanctification, to grow you, to, to teach you how to learn to love someone else, to display aspects of the gospel to that person. But with friends... You get to find somebody you really enjoy. You know, when I moved to, to Utah in 1996 to go to school. I, I knew hardly anybody in the state. In fact, the only person I knew was, was Corinne Talbot because I had visited several months earlier. I didn't know anybody. And I never had, I've never had family in this state other than the ones that we have birthed and, and married. Um, but I've always found real and lasting relationships in the friendships that I've found through the gospel. In fact, my deepest relationships have been friends that I've found in the church. And I wouldn't be here still in Utah if God had not given me those friends to see me through. In essence, these friends have become my family. And I think that's one of the promises of the gospel to us, that we can find such good family or good friends here that, in the church that it's almost like family, And this proverb tells us to be a good friend, you need to love unconditionally. Notice that this is loving someone as Christ has loved us. In friendship, in a good friendship, we get to display the gospel to somebody else, and they get to experience it. As we love somebody else unconditionally as Christ has loved us. So guess what? Christians ought to be the best the most loving, the most long-suffering friends on the planet. That means we need to work it hard at being good friends. It's through our relationships that we can share the gospel. We can demonstrate the gospel. And in return, in a good friendship, we get to experience the gospel. As believers in Jesus, let's work hard at building great friendships that love God and show the love of God to the world. This world is a lonely place. You guys know that. It needs the love of Christ given to it. And what a better way than becoming good friends with folks and showing them that love. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Again, Proverbs wants us to see that real friendship is different than having just a bunch of acquaintances or people you like to do things with. A friend not only loves, but he sticks with you, whatever the circumstances, when it's not maybe beneficial to him. Proverbs 19.4 shows the opposite of this long-suffering friend. It says, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Just inherit a little money and see how many friends show up. Suddenly you got friends in your family you never knew you had. Again, the idea is friendship is deeper than superficial relationships that depend on status or what's in it for me. The Bible doesn't support the uh, friends with benefits mentality. That We are only friends to reap a benefit. Rather, it wants friendships built on godly love and faithfulness that reflect God's love and faithfulness to us. Now, most of us have some good friends. I hope you do. If not, the gospel says there are some in the church. But I've found that the best friends are those that I share a spiritual relationship with, a spiritual friendship with. I like how Proverbs 25 says this, 20 verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Just recently, I had a longtime friend come in town. I hadn't seen him for a while. The guy was my roommate in college. He was my climbing partner. He's in accountability groups with me. We had fun together. We did all sorts of things. This guy knows me well. And we met, and it was just like old times. We, we talked about what God is doing in our life. We talked about the things we were struggling with. We talked about the things we were learning from His Word. We prayed together, and both of us walked away saying, Man, that was, that was the most uplifting conversation I've had in years thanks for being my friend this is spiritual friendship as a church we need to work on developing real loving spiritual friendships within this building and elsewhere let me encourage you when you get together with your christian friends don't just get together but talk about the lord encourage each other with the word pray together This is how you develop these deep spiritual friendships. And as a side product, you'll find out you begin to love one another well. Proverbs 26 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. I think this is a challenge to us. The gospel calls us to be good friends, particularly to those that believe in Jesus with us. Reflecting God's love and faithfulness to us, that's that's the pathway of friendship. And so I want to challenge you, who can you build a a spiritual friendship with in this room? Who do you need to pour into? Who do you need to show love and faithfulness to as a friend? There's a lot of people that come here every Sunday that don't know anybody, and they need you to be their friend. Let me encourage you to reach reach out to them. So that's some practical wisdom that Solomon gives us on friendship. Now let's look at a little bit of ethical wisdom that he gives us on giving to the poor. Now these are challenging verses. Proverbs 19.17 says this, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Let that sink in for a second. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Now, that's a good promise right there. This is a wonderful promise in the Proverbs. You know, the Bible over and over again affirms that if you give your resources to the Lord, you won't be sorry. Okay, that's what he tells us. He has a really good return on investment. And we talk about this all the time in tithing, right? Similarly, Malachi 3.10 says, Bring in the full tithe into the storehouse. Put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is God's promise to take care of your needs and in abundance if you will give to Him. And here in Proverbs 19.17 is the same idea. God sees your giving to the poor as a loan to Him and says, you know what, now I'm obligated to repay you for your generosity. That's a good deal. You know, over the next couple of weeks, we've, we've announced that we're doing another fundraiser for the Swahiba Youth Networks in Kenya. And we've picked this organization because we think it's a good one. We think they're doing good works. We think they're advancing the gospel in the slums around Kenya. And they're, they're giving and, and dealing with the poorest of the poor. And we said, we want to be a part of that. And so what we've challenged you guys to do is to, again, donate uh, $120 dollars helps one girl throughout the whole year. Now, you don't have to give 120 but give what you feel led to do. And with that 120 these girls receive feminine hygiene products. They receive a uniform so they can go to school. They receive food for their family. They receive an advocate that visits them and makes sure they're not being sexually abused, helps them with health care, even helps them with law issues if they have been abused. And on top of that, they go and they share the gospel with these girls and their families and their friends is helping the poorest of the poor. So I want to challenge you to give to the poor. I challenge you to give sacrificially to this and see how God will repay you. I've got my check right here. I'm sponsoring one girl. I'm putting it in there, and that's my challenge to you. Give to the Lord and see if he's not true to his promises, that he will repay you for what you've given now, in our day, we get all kind of weird about giving, right? We're like, man, I don't know. Like, maybe that group's not going to use my money wisely. Maybe they're going to waste it. Maybe they will. Maybe they, they, they won't steward my funds well. But I want you to see what this, this proverb is, is telling us. It's telling us that wisdom is to give to the Lord. And so the focus is on our heart. And our willingness to give to God. When you give charitably, give to a charitable cause that helps the poor, make your gift to Christ. When you're tithing in the plate for the church, make sure you're focused on giving to the Lord. God's more concerned about your heart attitude in giving than necessarily where you're giving it. He wants you to be willing to give and say, you know what, Lord, because you're Lord and I know that these resources came from you, I give in a pattern as you have given to me. And then guess what? You're released from the burden. You know whose problem it is then once you've given? It's those that have received it. They have to stand before God and answer how they've dealt with God's funds. That's relief. So when you give, you keep Jesus in the forefront of your mind. Now, we want to be discerning with our giving, right? We don't want to give to something that we know is not legitimate. And so we do our best to make sure that things are on the up and up. But again, once you give, it's up to the Lord to take care of the money. And he's big enough to, t- to manage his own account. And we take giving very seriously at Risen Life. I, I hope you know that, and I'm sure that you do. We-, we make diligent efforts to steward your funds really well. And we're constantly trying to refine how we do that in fact we've just gone through our next budgetary process and we've been very diligent about how we're we going to spend the money and i believe that we can say as a church we're doing well and i think you would agree proverbs 21:13 kind of continues this idea look what it says about giving to the poor it says whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered here again the lord is saying that the the measure that you're willing to treat others, God will respond to you in a similar fashion. If you want your needs met, then give. Now listen, this, this sounds crazy in our materialistic world. This is part of the folly of the gospel that if I'm in need, then I should give because God will take care of my needs. Right? That sounds like craziness. Listen, I, I've been diligent with, with the money that I started making when I was 11 years old. I've tithed my entire life. I started tithing on, on the, the lawns that I used to mow. And before that, my, mo- my dad gave me money, a couple dollars to put in the plate each week just so I would learn. And I can say without a doubt that I've never, never gone without what I needed. And even had more than what I needed. Recently, finances have been tight for us, and so I decided that I need to give some more money. Just this morning, I gave Kirk and Crystal, who were going to send out at the end of the service, I gave them money towards their mission. Just now, I put some money in the plate for the Swahiba thing, because I want to be found faithful to believe God in these promises. And so let me challenge you. If you're feeling financially burdened lately, you know what God says? Why don't you try giving me some money? And see how I take care of you. And so I challenge you to do that. If you're feeling the burden, then God says give and I'll take care of you. Now we've looked briefly at practical and ethical concerns that these chapters teach us about. But I want us to land on some theological wisdom that these chapters impart. And so let's look at chapters 16 verses 1 through 9. Now there's, a, there's an interesting shift that occurs in chapter 16 of Proverbs. This is the middle chapter of the book. Verse 17 is the middle verse, if you want to know what that is. Oftentimes we we think of the book of Proverbs as this kind of random collection of sayings all kind of thrown together, but I I want to show you that there are particular focuses and sections of the book as you get to know it. In fact, you really can break uh, Proverbs up into three General sections, and I think we'll have these up here on the, the board. Um, Proverbs one through nine, basically, here's Solomon uh, talking to his son, giving some wisdom sayings, but it's mainly meant to inspire and motivate us to pursue wisdom. Right, son, you want to get these things? They're really important. They're going to make life good. And Solomon does a great thing. He personifies wisdom as a woman, and guess what? A son wants a good woman. So he's going to chase after this thing called wisdom. Chapters 10 through 15, we begin to get these sayings from Solomon, these short, pithy lines that are imparting practical, ethical, theological wisdom. They're meant to be basic patterns and rules of wisdom. And if you'll notice, the way that it does this, predominantly in chapters 10 through 15, is it states one thing, and then it gives us the opposite. And as we think about that contrast, that's where we learn and get wisdom on what Solomon is teaching us about. Kind of like Proverbs 10.1 that says, A wise son makes a, father, or makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. This line teaches us about what it means to be a good son. And in the contrast between the father and the mother, we find a new way of looking at life. But then in chapter 16, we get a shift, okay? Chapters 16 through 30, wisdom is generally communicated differently. It mainly tells you something similar. Gives you one line, gives you another line that's similar. And what's happening here is after chapter 16, wisdom gets more complicated. We've gotten basic rules, and now we're getting more and more complicated scenarios. Like Proverbs 16, 26, it says, A worker's appetite works for him. Similarly, his mouth urges him on, saying it's our appetite that drives us to be hard workers at some level. This is in contrast to our slug, our sluggard earlier who can't finish his cinnamon toast crunch, right? So these chapters impart wisdom also through better than sayings. And so the goal of this is to get you experienced in more and more complicated ways of implying wisdom. And then we come to Proverbs 31. It talks about the Eshid Hayel or the, the excellent wife. This is meant to be a conclusion to the whole book that is meant to embody. Wisdom in this woman, we've been looking for Lady Wisdom, here she is as the excellent wife, doing the things that wisdom does. So Proverbs is not just a random book of sayings, but it's communicating wisdom to us in intricate ways and different forms that help us to see life in a new light. Now, as we said, Proverbs 16 is the middle of the book. And I think what's happening here in this shift is that Solomon wants us to refocus again on the Lord. As we go into these harder sayings, he's saying, okay, we need to think about God again. In fact, in these verses, verses 1 through 9 is the biggest collection of of verses that talk about Yahweh or the Lord. Okay, so let's take a look at what these say. Basically the, the main point of this section is to teach us that God is sovereign over everything that happens on earth and particularly the deeds of men. We learned at the beginning of Proverbs 1.7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and this is the theological foundation of wisdom and there is nothing that makes God bigger and more scary and worthy to be feared and honored and revered, even as we just sung earlier, than the fact that He is in control and oversees everything. And as we take that in and believe it and understand it, it leads us to want to follow Him. Proverbs 16.1 says this, The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of a tongue is from the Lord. This proverb at a basic level informs us that we can, we can plan whatever we want, but God has the final say on what's going to happen. With this word of his mouth, the Lord establishes what happens on the earth. Now, this is not saying in our general experience that you try to say something and, you, and God puts words in your mouth. Like if you go to Dunkin' Donuts and you're thinking, man, I really want the Boston cream donut and all I can say is plain cake, dang it. That's not what this is telling us. But it's not saying less than that either. You know, characters throughout the Bible have witnessed to the fact that God puts words in their mouth. In fact, in Numbers, three times Balaam tells us that God has constrained him to bless Israel instead of curse them as he wants. Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah has quit being a prophet. He's done with the harassment. He's done He's done serving the Lord, and he says, I tried to not talk about the Lord, and yet it was like a burning in my bones that I just had to speak. And positively, in the New Testament, this aspect of God's sovereignty becomes comfort to us. In fact, when we really understand God's sovereignty, it becomes comfort because the world is not uh, wildly out of control. It sits under God's control. And when we get into trouble, we can then appeal to Him who is over it all. And so in Luke twelve eleven through 12, Luke tells us that, uh, or Jesus tells us, that when you are drugged before rulers and authorities, being persecuted as a believer, don't be anxious about how to defend yourself because the Holy Spirit will give you words meant to be a comfort. This Proverbs 16.1 teaches us that our plans are secondary to God's plans. We can plan all we want, but God's plans will stand. And that God can even establish His plans in our very words. we see God's control of all things, it's meant to do a couple things for us. It's meant to humble us. Remember, Proverbs wants us to fear the Lord. This isn't I'm terrified of him, but it's, it's reverent honor and respect for who he is, and so this is meant to humble us. Similarly to Proverbs 16.1, Proverbs 16.33 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. This verse removes all chance from our thinking, right? He's talking about they're drawing straws and the decision comes from the Lord. This means there's no chance, there's no karma. Let me introduce you to the Lord is His name, and He is in the one of charge of everything that seems chance to us. Proverbs 16.2 builds on this understanding of God's sovereignty. It teaches us about what the Lord cares about. Listen to this. It says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs his spirit. Here we see that there could be a difference between I, what I think I should do and maybe what God thinks is the best plan. We may have talked ourselves into a course of action, a way of being or thinking, and God looks at our hearts and says, No, oh, that ain't right, bro. Your heart has led you astray. So in wisdom, we learn that God is more concerned with our motives, of our heart and our mind, of our spirit may think that we're doing good, and others may as well, but God judges our ways by His standard. So again, the the proper response to this would be to then submit our ways to Him, submit our thoughts, our actions to Him, and, and let Him sit as the judge over them. How am I thinking, how is it matching up with what God says? And In fact, anything we're thinking in life, this is really the rubric we should send it through as a believer in Christ. Okay? We're making a decision. We're thinking about what does God say about this thing. Here's what we do. We look at these three things. We look at what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about the thing that I'm wrestling with? Secondly, we, we, we listen to the Spirit through prayer, other means, and, and think, what, what is what is the Spirit saying to me? What does the Spirit say? But we don't stop there, and I think we often leave this off. But an important piece of this is that we also ask What does the church say? What do we as a body say about these things? And as we do that, we're submitting our ideas and thoughts to God until we come to a place of wisdom about what God thinks. And then Proverbs 16.3 gives us kind of the natural conclusion to the progression of these verses. If my plans are secondary to God's Word, if God cares more about my motives and judges my actions then a good course of action would be to make my plans conform conform to what god is doing and look at the promise in 16:3 commit your work to the lord and your plans will be established the way of wisdom is to be constantly submitting our plans our thoughts our ideas the motives of our heart our intentions to god's standard and plan for the world And choosing His over ours. Because here's the theological truth this is getting at. Whether you like it or not, your plans will be submitted to what the Lord has. And it's far better to do that on the front side. But the promise is that if we will align ourselves with God, our desires, His plans, what He's doing in the world, God will be with us. And He will establish our plans. The things you want to do will be successful because they're what God is doing. So wisdom means submitting our plans to God, and in turn we find life and blessing. And really, really, that's the gospel call, right? Christ says, come follow me. Put, lay down your life and pick up mine, and you'll find life and blessing. Stop fighting against me. I think we see this in, in the example of Paul's conversion in Acts twenty-six, fourteen through 16. Paul says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as my servant and witness. Here Paul has been working, he thinks for the Lord, and Jesus comes to him and says, Dude, I've been speaking to you, I've been showing you what's right, and you keep running from me. Is that fun to keep kicking against the goads? My plans will be established. Wouldn't it be easier just to submit to me and follow me, and then you'll be working with me? Paul says, I think I'll do that. And then we have one of the greatest apostles of, of the Bible in the New Testament. Now, Proverbs 16.4 is going to turn up the heat a little bit more on God's sovereignty. Let's let's look at this. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, this is one of the tougher sayings of the Bible, and at first glance, it's downright disturbing. Okay, But remember, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and this verse is meant to shock you. It's meant to get you thinking. It's meant to provoke a response in you. It's meant to provoke a proper respect and fear of the Lord's complete control of everything we see. To think that in His pervasive purposes, there is a place for those who do evil. So is this saying God created evil men to do evil? I don't think so per se. Bible elsewhere decrees that God only does good, and that man is the one that is running from God. And yet the Bible speaks on two levels, right? It gives us a top-down view. God's in control. God's doing all these things, and it gives us a bottom-up view that says, you know what? You're doing evil in your heart. You should turn from that. You should follow me. You should do other things. In fact, that's just what the previous verse said. It said, give your ways to the Lord, and He'll establish you. And yet here, he's speaking on the upper level. He's telling us that evil is not out of the realm of God's control. And as we run far from him, the trick on those that are doing evil is that those things fit right into what God is doing in the world. He takes their evil deeds that they're doing for their own intentions and he turns them around for his own plans. And it tells us that God will be glorified by those that do good in the last day, and He will also receive glory as He brings those that have done wicked to judgment. This verse reminds us that there is nothing under God's control, even the wicked. And listen, that, that should call us to bow down before the Lord and say, Lord, I want to serve you. I don't want to be in that group. And it also should be a great comfort to us. That know Jesus, to know that there is nothing that happens to us from anybody or any place that is not under the Lord's control. And so we can look at Him and say, God, help me in this. How am I supposed to walk in this? What are you doing, Lord? And we submit our wills to Him. Now, Proverbs 16.5 continues this thought, and it gives us a little more insight into the attitudes of the wicked In the face of God's sovereignty, here's what it says. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. As we've said earlier, a proper response to God's sovereignty is a humbling of our heart, a coming under His ways and His plans, not hardening our heart. The the response of the wicked is to harden their heart, to continue in human hubris, to be arrogant about their ways and their plans and what they're going to do. And God says, don't worry, that won't go unpunished. I've made you for the day of judgment. But in contrast, look at Proverbs 16, 6. It says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. This verse reminds us of the reverse. As we see God for who He is and we begin to fear Him, we're like, God, I, I want to be on your team. And that leads us into a life of love for Him, faithfulness to Him, as we focus on Him. And then look at the benefits in Proverbs 16, 7. It says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Wow, that's how much God is for you when you are on His team. He will even make your enemies to be at peace with you. This is like David in Psalm 23 when he sings, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Because you are sovereign and you are in control, I can be in the presence of my enemies, and you are still working out your good purposes in me. God is so sovereign that he can bless you in a way that you prosper in the midst of wickedness and evil. You may even find favor in your enemy's eyes. Proverbs 16.8 says this, Better is a little with righteousness than with great revenues with injustice. The idea here is that even even if I'm doing my best to follow the Lord and it's just a little bit, that's way better if God is on my team than being on the side of the wicked. It's better to reap the benefits of friendship with God and to reap the friendship benefits of the world. And then Proverbs sixteen nine brings this section to a close as we, Solomon has refocused us on the Lord and, and wisdom. It says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Again, it's man has plans in his heart, but it's God who controls his steps. I want to bring Kirk and Crystal up here today. I think these guys embody what this means as we've seen this transformation in chapter 16. These guys would tell you of their own admission. There was a day when they were planning their own steps, running far from the Lord, doing their own thing, and yet God began to show them something else. And today we get to send them out as, as missionaries to Djibouti from our church. We've got to know them over the last couple of years. We've been praying for them, seeing how God is answering their financial needs and, and all these things. And so this is an exciting day. I think they would say, we planned our way, but God has established our steps. And so like Proverbs 16, 3, we want to commit them to the Lord so that He will establish their steps. And so what we're going to ask is that if you want to pray for these guys, come on up because we're, we're going to lay hands on them and send them out And I want you to know at Risen Life, we want more of this. We want more people that will give their hearts to the Lord and follow His ways to be church planters, missionaries, and others. And so as these guys come up, you know, there's a lot of things we can pray for them. We all have something we'd love to pray for them. And we'd be here till 3 in the afternoon if we all prayed everything. So here's what we're going to do. In just a moment, I'm going to ask everybody to just pray out loud for these guys. You just offer up your prayer for a few minutes, and then I'm going to close this. Okay? So we want to pray that God would be with them and establish their steps as He has shown. So I'll open this up in prayer. Then you begin to pray out loud for these guys. Lord, we lift up Kirk and Crystal to you in the name of Christ. faithfulness at Risen Life, thank you for their faithfulness in trusting you in their finances, thank you for their faithfulness in in seeking to be godly men and women that, that display who you are to the world, thank you that they were willing to see what you're doing and say, God, I want to follow you, I want to take on your passion for the nations, so God, we thank you for them. And God, we pray for them as they go out that you would establish their ways and their work. God, we pray that you would bring protection over this young family, over Kezia and Kirk and Crystal, that you would keep them from the enemy. Lord, you would keep them from any disasters and trouble. Lord, we pray that you'd give them perseverance in the face of evil and struggle and being depressed. God, and we pray that you would save many souls through them. That many in Africa would look and say, you know what? Because Kirk and Crystal gave to you, I know Jesus. So, Lord, we send them out from our church with great love. And we pray that you establish their steps. We commit their work to you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.